following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Let me say it again. You've heard it a couple times already, but happy Mother's Day. It is a wonderful day where we get to uh, look at the mothers in our lives and celebrate them. And if it weren't for you, both figuratively figuratively, as well as literally, uh, we would not be here. So thank you. Thank you for who you are as a mother, the way that God has uniquely designed and gifted you. If If you're new with us at Stone Oak... This text this morning might not be what you expected for a Mother's Day sermon. Let me explain why. Let me talk through a little bit of the history of our church and the way that we actually use this pulpit. We feel that one of the best ways that we can proclaim the Word of God is to uh, walk through the Bible in a verse-by-verse manner. Most of our three-plus years of existence as a church, this is how we have operated We have selected books of the Bible, and we walk through them slowly, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, section by section. One of the challenges of this format, of an expositional format, of walking through the text in this way, are large books, such as Genesis. The book of Genesis is a large book. If we were to look at the book of Genesis and walk through it verse by verse, We would be in the book of Genesis for a very long time. If you've been with us recently, we just finished up the book of 1 Corinthians. Book of 1 Corinthians took us a little over a year to completely walk through that book. Genesis, quite a bit longer. It would take us a total of a couple of years, really, to walk through the entire text of the book of Genesis. So how do we do this? How do we walk through these large books? Well, we break them up into sections. This is actually the second time that we've been inside of the book of Genesis. Spoiler alert, we're not going to finish it in this stint either. We will have to pick it up again at a later time. Our elders gather uh, around the time of November each year to plan out what we call our preaching calendar, to look at uh, where God is leading us as a church to proclaim the gospel through the text. And in this, we walk through what books we will be preaching. We walk through what texts that we will be preaching, as well as we walk through who will be preaching that. We do this based upon uh, the Word of God even more than we do the calendar, the yearly calendar. We let the Word of God dictate our calendar. All of that to say, you won't be hearing certain sermons from us as a church. So on the 4th of July weekend, we won't have a patriotism sermon. On Father's Day, we won't have a Father's Day sermon. On Mother's Day, we won't have a Mother's Day sermon. But what you can guarantee to hear from us on all of those holidays, as well as every single Sunday, is the Word of God proclaimed. Our goal is to present the gospel no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the holiday is, to be faithful with the Word of God. This is the the goal of our church, is that we give a healthy diet of the Word of God. As we look towards Genesis 17, will you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father God, we ask you, Lord, to to help us to hear, Father, your holy word. Father, that we may truly understand what you have spoken to us. And that by understanding, Father, that we may believe, Lord, and out of our belief we may follow in faithfulness and obedience. Father, I ask that you would illumine our hearts this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to hear God. Father, we are seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do. Father, it is through Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen. So I mentioned that this probably wouldn't be uh, the typical Mother's Day sermon that you might expect. Let's look at the text, and you'll see quickly why. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17. And we'll be in verses 9 through the end, 9 through 27, Genesis 17, 9 through 27. I'm going to read this all as one large text. Follow along with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. Beginning in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. 
Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of the house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. What a better topic to cover on Mother's Day than circumcision. If you were with us last week, uh, Justin had a larger text than he chose to preach on. I'll give you two guesses what he decided to punt and leave on Mother's Day. (laughs) Welcome to Mother's Day. We are glad you are here. Happy Mother's Day as we look at what God has revealed to us through his word. Many of you might be able to to relate with this story. I am just grateful that there's at least a woman in this story, and we see a woman who is promised to be a mother, a mother that some of you might be able to relate with, a mother who has struggled with God's plan for her life in the midst of childbearing. This morning, we're going to approach this text in three sections. These three sections are most likely broken up into the paragraph sections within your Bible, which makes it helpful to follow along. The first section, we'll look at 9 through 14, the instructions concerning Abraham. We'll look then, the second section of 15 through 21, instructions concerning Sarah And then we'll end our time with the last portion, 22 through 27, looking at faith in action. If you've been with us the past couple weeks and you've seen the story of Abram, who has now changed his name, Abraham, we've slowly progressed through Genesis to this pivotal point in Genesis chapter 17. We've seen this same covenant as promised here in 17. If we look back a couple chapters, we've seen it in chapters 12 as well as in chapter 15. Each time as we've looked at this same covenant of Genesis 17, though, it's become more detailed. It's become more full. The how of the covenant here is beginning to be revealed piece by piece. God chooses here not to reveal everything in an instant, but he chooses to slowly progress Abraham through what this covenant is. He required Abraham to believe in faith concerning this covenant. Abraham, as we've seen, has done both a good job of this as well as he's done a poor job all at the same time. Depending on which chapter and even in those chapters, which section we're in the chapter determines, is this good Abraham or is this poor Abraham at believing this covenant promised by God? We aren't much different than Abraham. We also do a good and a poor job of believing in faith. If you were with us last week, you should remember the the first eight verses here. It's it's within these verses 
that God really unpacks the covenant. He makes the covenant even more clear to Abraham as well as to us. God is establishing his covenant between himself and Abraham. He will be their God, and they will be his people. This leads us then to our first section, verses 9 through 14. It's within this section that God lays out to Abraham what he calls a sign of the covenant, beginning in verse 11. Notice this isn't the covenant, but it is a sign of the covenant. Signs serve all kinds of purpose. The the purpose of a sign, though, is greater than itself. What I mean by that, think of a stop sign. A stop sign's purpose is not for you to stop and to admire the beautiful stop sign. Look at the gorgeous red. Look at the weathering that's perfectly done on the edges. Look at those perfectly spaced S-T-O-P. I love that stop sign. I'm admiring the beauty of that stop sign. If you do that, most likely you've cruised on through the intersection or you've sat there for way too long and have made a couple people upset at you. The purpose of the stop sign is not for you to admire the beauty of the stop sign. That's foolish. It's also dangerous. The purpose of a stop sign is it is a reminder for you to stop. Do you have a set drive every day? Is it every day you wake up and you have a set journey that you go on? Possibly it's to get to work. Uh, Possibly it's to take the kids to school. That set journey that at the first time, it was probably a little leery on how do we get there. You might have used GPS to help you navigate those first couple of trips. However, what happens over time, though, is you no longer need the visual reminder for your vehicle to stop at that stop sign. At this point, you kind of just have an innate ability to understand, oh, that's right, I'm coming up on that stop sign. Biggest one for me is this stop sign right at the top of Evans right here. If you've ever come off of 281 heading this way on Evans, there's a stop sign there. Some of you know this, some of you don't know this. There's a stop sign there. The stop sign, every once in a while, gets hidden by trees. There's a tree right in front of that stop sign. I think it is right now, in fact, hidden by trees. If you come from 281 and you don't know that stop sign's there, it's hidden. For majority of us, we've driven this road of coming from 281 on Evans, and you understand there's a stop sign right there. There are days, however, where some people might zone out as they're driving. Those early mornings when your calendar is packed, your calendar is full, and you're just processing through the day's events, thinking of all the meetings that you need to schedule, all the phone calls that you have, all the emails that you've looked at that you know whenever you get to the office you're going to have to reply, or possibly it's the kids in the back seat causing World War III as you are driving, and your focus is honestly not on the road ahead of you, but it is on the chaos behind you. It's helpful in those moments to have a reminder. It's helpful in those moments for there to be a stop sign that reminds us this is where we cease. This is where we we stop. We slow down and we stop right here. It's for our own good as well as those around you that you see that sign and you remember what it reminds you to do. God is gracious and he's giving Abraham that very same reminder. This covenant is not a small deal either. In fact, I would say it's one of the biggest covenants, the biggest things that we see within Scripture. God has come down to establish this covenant. God could have chosen to reveal himself and this covenant in any numbers of ways. Yet, he chooses to personally come down and establish this covenant with Abraham. As I was studying this passage it became very clear to me that God is preparing his people already for Christ. We have here God establishing a covenant with his people by coming down. Do you know what another word for covenant is? Another word for covenant is testament. That should sound familiar to you. We're reading from what we call the Old Testament. And if you flip a couple pages forward... You have the New Testament, the Old Testament covering from the book we're in currently, Genesis, all the way through Malachi, and the New Testament picking up with Matthew and ending with Revelation. Probably a better way to translate Old Testament and New Testament, though, would be Old Covenant and New Covenant. In fact, some of your Bibles might actually translate it this way. It might not say Old Testament and New Testament. It might say Old Covenant and New Covenant, depending on your translation. 
There are two sections here within our Bible. The Old Covenant is making itself known as we have progressed through Genesis. It will continue to slowly reveal itself all the way up until God gives his commandments upon stone tablets. It's then that the covenant is full. The people of God then know the covenant and what is required of them based upon this covenant. The New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus. It begins with God once again coming down. This time he comes down in the form of man. It begins with four books that we simply call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's within these books that we see the man God, born of the virgin. It's in these books that we see the Savior of the world emptying himself to enter into our own world. It's within these pages that God reveals himself to us in his own flesh through his Son. You see, there's no way that we can approach a holy God. We are born as sinful human beings without the possibility of cleansing ourselves. Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, no, not one. That includes me, that includes you. This means we have no hope, yet we continually try to reach and to grasp at God. If we go back a couple of chapters, Genesis chapter 11, you can see uh, what I consider a very funny story. Very funny story of the Tower of Babel, of a people who try to build a tower to reach God. It isn't height that separates us from God, but it is ourselves, our sin, that separates us from God. God chooses to come down to the people in Genesis chapter 11 who cannot reach up to him. He does this in Genesis 17 as well, to establish his covenant with his people. And he does this in the New Testament as well. He comes down to establish his new covenant and continually establishing his people. We place our hope and our trust in a God who comes down. So God, in this first section, comes to Abraham, and he tells him of the sign that he wants him to place upon the flesh as a sign of this covenant. History shows us that the idea of a covenant is not only a biblical idea. Covenants are practiced throughout the ancient Near East, throughout this time period. Covenants are common. It's almost like an indentured servitude to where if I am a mighty king and I have um, a lesser king or a lesser ruler with me, we could enter into a covenant. I want this individual to continue doing their job. I want this lesser king to continue to rule and to reign. It's helpful to me that they are continuing to do this. I, I want them to be the best ruler, the best uh, under-shepherd, if you will, that they can be. And so what I do is I enable them with uh, wealth or with possession, with land. I want to gain something from you. I want you to rule on behalf of me, but I also want you to receive something. It is your payment, if you will. So you and I make a covenant together. I want you to continue working for me, and here's the lines. Continue doing your job. If you are faithful, here's what I give you from my own. This would be our covenant together. We would make this agreement. Have you ever made an agreement with someone? Of course you have. Have you ever made an agreement with someone that tries to then change what the agreement is if it looks like they're about to lose whatever that agreement was? I do this quite often with my children. <laughs> a lot. Uh, I parent with a lot of if-then statements. If you try your hardest at homework, if you clean up this room, specifically with my daughter, she is very stingy with her kisses. If you give daddy a kiss, then, how many times have you had to remind them, though, of that agreement that we entered into? Hey, listen, I, I know you want the reward right now, but the if statement has not been fulfilled yet. You have not cleaned your, your room yet, so we can't quite go to the then of ice cream. We have to both be kind of working alongside of this agreement. By the end of the agreement, though, it often seems that both parties have changed the agreement. It was if you clean your room, it's now if you pick up three toys. And it was then you get ice cream, now you get the world. You get McDonald's, you get ice cream, you get Chick-fil-A. I don't care what it is, just please help me out here. We often change this agreement. Our covenant has been adjusted. 
But a covenant during this time period of the ancient Near, Near East, whenever they would establish this covenant together, they were individuals just like you and I. They are prone to forget the covenant. They are prone to, des to desire to change the covenant to benefit them the greatest. So what do these individuals do? Well, they establish a covenant reminder. They establish an agreed-upon covenant reminder. Often, these covenant reminders are written on stone. It shows that they are permanent. It shows that these are unchanging. It shows the seriousness of this. This is not an easy task to write this covenant upon stone. It also serves as a reminder of the circumstances. For both parties, this is what we have agreed to. It's written right over there on that big old rock. We have agreed to do that. I can't change it. You can't change it. That is our reminder of our covenant. Notice how God chooses to establish his covenant with Abraham. It isn't on stone. God chooses to establish his covenant with Abraham on flesh. Pause for just a second and take a journey with me. Begin with verse 1 of this exact same chapter, chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 1. When Abram was 90 years old, and old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God tells Abraham to walk before him blameless. Blameless is tough. That's a tough standard here that God has set up for Abraham. What does blameless look like? If we were to go on the river walk right after church, we were all to gather together and walk down to the river walk, and uh, we approach people at the river walk, and we simply ask them, do you think you are good? I would bet we'd probably have a very high percentage of individuals who say, absolutely, I think I am good. As time progresses, though, if we do the same thing 20 years from now, the definition of good has probably progressed as well. What was good 20 years ago might not be good today. What was good today might not be good tomorrow. Our measuring stick of good changes constantly. If we fast forward to the book of Exodus, we see once again that God is gracious. If we were to go around this room and we were to create a list of actions that would get us the title of blameless, we could probably create a really long but a really good list of here's all of the things that you must do in order to be blameless. The problem with that solution, however, is that it doesn't matter what you or I think is blameless. We are not the judge of what God considers as blameless. God is the one who has told Abraham and his offspring to be blameless. Therefore, God is the one who only has the right and the authority to establish what blameless is. God reveals his grace to his people in Exodus chapter 20 when he delivers to them tablets of stone. He delivers to them tablets of stone upon which blameless is given parameters. We then have guidelines for blameless. We often think of the law as punishment, and as a pain for the Old Testament saints to deal with. However, the law is God's grace revealed to his people. He has revealed and clarified once again what it means to be blameless. Did you catch it, though? These are written upon stone. There came a day where God came down in flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ to fulfill the stone. He conquered it through his own flesh, just as there was blood and the pain in the physical act of circumcision, so also there was blood and pain in the person of Christ upon the cross. God established a new covenant with his people in his flesh and establishes the new covenant with his people with his own flesh, his son. He takes the covenant and he places the pain upon his own son, yet gives us the reward. The agreement has not changed. We still break the covenant of blamelessness. Yet, we are not the ones who take on the punishment of the breaking of the covenant. God places the punishment of our sins upon his son's shoulders. This is God's grace and God's mercy on display. 
This is God in Genesis, pointing to Christ's fulfillment in the flesh. God takes the common act of circumcision. Circumcision is not only a biblical thing. It is also practiced at the same time period. Most of people around this time period would be practicing at at the age of 13, around the age of puberty. God takes this common act of circumcision, and he completely redeems it. Just as covenants were popular in this time of history, so also was circumcision. God seems to be in the business of redeeming. He redeems circumcision. If we fast forward later in Scripture, he takes the common tool for the Romans to torture, the cross, and he redeems that as well. And in the process, he takes us, broken, sinful individuals, and redeems us. God says, watch this. You see what man has used, watch what I can do with this. God Almighty shows how he can take what is ultimately used in many different areas and says, this is my purpose. He takes the cross and he redeems it for our sake. Read with me verses 11 through 13 of Genesis chapter 17. You should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So it's within these verses that God here lays out the how of circumcision as well as the who of circumcision. Before we walk through this lovely details of circumcision on Mother's Day, don't skip past here, verse 11. Verse 11, who is this sign for? It says this is a sign for Abraham. This is a sign of the covenant between me and you. Yet it's accomplished through his whole household. It's not only for Abraham, but it's, it's for his sons, it's for everybody in his household, everybody that he's bought and brought into his household as well. It's almost like throwing a birthday party for a one-year-old. I know you do this, I see you. I see the smirks, you can hear the giggles. We throw birthday parties for one-year-olds. Why do we do this? How many of you, raise of hands, remember your first birthday party as a one-year-old? Let the record show I see zero hands. However, we still do it. One-year-old birthday parties are not for the child. One-year-old birthday parties, let's be honest, it's for us as the parents. We're happy to celebrate a year of birth with our children. It's done for the parents. The birthday sign is a, or the birthday party is a sign for the parents. It's a reminder. My child has made it a whole year. Successful parenting, they are still alive after a year. Well done. It isn't only Abraham that God is calling to be circumcised here, but it's every single male in his household. It's a reminder to Abraham and to all of his household the covenant that he has made with God. It's not just a reminder to the males within the household, though. It's also a reminder of the covenant to Sarah. God told Abraham that he would make him the father of many nations. Get practical with me for just a second. Happy Mother's Day. In order for him to be the father of many nations, certain events must occur between him and Sarah. God chooses to use the organ of procreation as a reminder of his covenant. God could have chosen to use anything. He could have chosen the earlobe. He could have chosen a specific haircut. He could have chosen any body part to feature as a sign of the covenant. Yet, he chooses to use the object that will fulfill his covenant, the sign of the covenant, although only occurring to Abraham, is seen by Sarah in the stages of fulfilling the covenant. This is really fun. We're going all around the bush without saying certain things. It should be a reminder to Abraham and to Sarah that fulfillment of this covenant is the work of God. Pause for just a second. I just used the words organ of procreation on Mother's Day with my own mother sitting in the audience. (laughs) There are many things as a pastor that I never imagined I would get to do in the pastorate. This 
might be at the top of the list. <laughs> Moving on. Should be a reminder to Abraham and to Sarah that God is in control. It's also a reminder to Abraham of his misuse and his sin with Hagar. What reminders do you choose to place within your life which remind you that God is in control? How are you reminded of verse 1? I am God Almighty. How are you reminded to, as Justin said a couple weeks ago, look up and behold? May I suggest two things? First, prayer. It is on our knees as we bow our heads that we are able to look up and behold God Almighty. While at the same time beholding our inability to walk before him blameless. Secondly, I would suggest through God's word. It is within these pages that the Holy Spirit molds us and he forms us, as well as he reminds us. Do you see how faithful God was to Abraham? He is just as faithful to you. Do you see the way that he loves? Do you see the way that he leads, that he guides? that he shepherds Abraham, it is the same with you. God is unchanging. We can have complete confidence in the character of God. The way that he has acted in the past should give us hope for the way that he will act in the future. Be reminded of God Almighty. Be reminded of El Shaddai. Before we move on to the next section, let's quickly look, quickly look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Notice the wordplay of shall be cut off, dealing with circumcision. Shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's within these verses that God chooses to also put before Abraham. What about those who refute this practice? God says that they have broken this covenant. We see the same theme picked up in the New Testament. If we look at Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, it reads like this. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision is not salvific. Just as baptism, just as the Lord's Supper, just as church attendance, just as the giving of finances, just as serving, or anything else that you would like to throw into the blanks, are not salvific. They do not save. These acts cannot save us. Circumcision isn't about the physical act, but the heart and the faith behind it is the absolute same today. This is a concept we don't talk about often, but we probably should more there's a theological framework that becomes uh, popularized during the Protestant Reformation, um, most attributed to Augustine. There's no clear it is Augustine, but most would attribute it to him. Uh, but it doesn't become very popular until the time of the Reformation. It's the idea of the visible and the invisible church. In the West, I think we really need to look at this concept deeply, specifically here as well as across the Bible Belt, we need to look at this concept deeply. The visible church. This would be anyone uh, and everyone who attends a gathering of the church. Some of the people, however, on a gathering of the church do not have faith in God. There is no salvation. They have not been justified by the work of Christ upon the cross. Within the visible church, though, there's also the invisible church. These are uh, the individuals who have faith in the work of Christ upon the cross for salvation. These are truly justified individuals. Looking at the audience this morning, I have no idea who belongs to the invisible church. All I can see is the visible church, hence the very helpful names 
of the visible church and the invisible, the unseeable church. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Just so you all know, I will continually use this pulpit to proclaim the gospel, as if every single one of us are in need of the gospel. I will continue to proclaim the gospel to even my own wretched heart, because I still need the ever-loving word of the gospel. My heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And what brings me back and what brings us back is the gospel, the work of Christ upon the cross. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have salvation. Circumcision didn't save these people, and neither do our actions today. It is only through belief that we have salvation. Matthew Henry, a common commentator, says this, Both under the old and new dispensation, many have had the outward profession and the outward seal, who were never sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Let this not be said of us. Our text takes a transition here in verse 15, and it starts our second section. The language of verse 15, if you look back to verse 9, begins the exact same way, and God said to Abraham. This time, though, the instructions change. The first section, the instructions were specifically for Abraham. Second section, 15 through 21, the instructions are not for Abraham, but they are for Sarah. Ladies, how many of you would love your husband to begin a sentence this way? God told me to tell you. <laughs> Fill in the blank. First of all, husbands, I do not suggest this. <laughs> Whatever follows probably will not be received well by your wife, no matter what it is. Secondly, you take on the role of a prophet. Be very careful with the words, God told me to tell you. The Bible has a couple things to say about prophets and the way that they should act and the way they should be treated if they are found incorrect. Be warned. Abraham here is given this task, though. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm speaking to you. Here's what you need to tell your wife and what your wife needs to do. He's being commanded by the Lord of things concerning his wife. God here fills in the details of this covenant concerning his offspring. As it turns out, it will come through his barren wife, Sarah. God changes her name just as he did with Abraham. If we remember back, he changed it from Abram to Abraham. He changes it here as well from Sarai to Sarah. Bible names mean a lot more than they do for us today. The change from Sarah to Sarah, or Sarai to Sarah, let me give you a definition. Sarai means princess. Sarah means princess. The name change here doesn't change meaning. It's the same meaning for both names. I believe this points directly back to verse 1. I am God Almighty. God here is showing the power that he has over them, the authority that he has to even change their names. After the name change, God reveals to Abraham that Sarah will be given a son. And this son will be the line that God chooses to use to fulfill his covenant. Up until this point, we haven't known how the covenant of multiplication that has been promised in 12 and 15 and in the beginning of 17 would be fulfilled, and neither had Abraham or Sarah. Abraham has only known that he would be the father of many nations, and that Ishmael is not the way that God had chosen for this to occur. Abraham was not sure how God was going to fulfill this covenant. He now finds out that it will be through his barren wife, Sarah. Oftentimes, our plans might not look like God's plans. It is in these moments that we must go right back to verse 1 of the same chapter and rely upon the Almighty God. Abraham is wondering about his current son, though. He's wondering about what is right before him. I completely get this. I, I understand where Abraham is coming from. God has promised his, him something in the future, and he looks at what he has right here, right now. I have a son. Let's go through this. Let's fulfill this covenant. He is right here. I know you've promised one later, but look what I have right here, right now. We have quite a few expressions, quite a few idioms for these. Help me out. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Yeah. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We say the same exact things. What I currently hold is worth more than what the possibility, no matter how great it is, of what might be to come. 
our times right now are very interesting in uh, my generation, the, the generation of millennials, extremely interesting, and I, as one, don't even understand them many times. Most of us, as millennials, have what has been deemed a credit card mentality. The idea of, I don't want to wait for it. Um, I want it now, and I want it immediately, and I want the best possible version of it. We want the get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, we love the magic pills, which cut off 30 pounds in 30 seconds. We, we are attracted to these types of things. Abraham knows of the future son here. However, he wants to know, what about my current son? What happens with Ishmael? We once again see the grace of God on display. God didn't have to choose to bless Ishmael in any way. Yet, he chooses to. It's different than Isaac, but God still chooses to bless him. God has revealed to Abraham, who goes and tells Sarah, that, hey, Isaac is going to be king of nations. Ishmael, if you look at his, Isaac is promised king. Ishmael, princess. Isaac is promised nations, plural. Ishmael, nation. It is different. There seems to be God's favored, God's grace still. God doesn't have to choose to bless Ishmael, yet he still chooses to create a nation. This is tremendous. We see God is gracious. Abraham's are reminded, once again, in verse 21, of this line of the covenant will be established through Isaac. Sarah will have Isaac a year from then. Imagine, if you will, that period of waiting. I'm sure in the midst of this period of waiting that Abraham has his doubts. I'm sure, based upon what we have seen concerning the character of Abraham, that he has his doubts whether God is truly coming through with what he has promised. Did God really say he was going to do this? Did God really mean that she, my barren wife, who is 99 years old, 90 years old, is going to have a child? Does he have faith in this season of waiting? Are you currently in a season of waiting? Do you have faith in God even when he seems absent? We preach through the book of Job all the way back at the kind of mid-beginning of 2016. Where is God in the waiting would be the theme that I would say for the book of Job. This is a tremendous uh, study for me as we walk through the book of Job. It is still out there on our website if you'd like to go back and listen to it. But it answers the same question of where is God when he appears to be silent? Transition with me to our third section, verses 22 through 27. This section here begins with God departing from Abraham. God came down and is now going up. Once again, this should remind you of Christ. Christ came down and died upon the cross for the atonement of sins. Three days later, the stone was rolled away. He comes out of the grave. Forty days after this, we see in Acts chapter 1 that Christ then ascends into heaven. God came down and is now going back up in Genesis 17. We see Christ come down and is now going right back up to the Father, sitting at the right hand waiting for God to say, get my people. Abraham puts his faith into action in this last section. When we look at these three sections, to me, this last section is the key section within Genesis chapter 17. The other two don't necessarily show the faith of Abraham. They show the instructions to Abraham, but they don't show his actions. He could have said he believed everything God had told him, and then he leaves it at that. It's with these last four verses that we see the obedience of Abraham. We see that his obedience is the evidence of his faith. I think this is where we struggle as Christians, putting our faith into action, into actions of obedience. I heard a wonderful illustration that I'm going to steal. I will give credit that I stole it this time. However, from this point forward, I'll say the saying that I always say. Imagine we are all standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. We are on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, and there's a large line going from one side to the other, and up steps a man who says that he is a tightrope walker. He asks, who has faith that I can walk this tightrope? We look at him, and he appears to have all of the gear. I have no idea what a tightrope walker gear is, but he has it all, whatever that would be. And he doesn't really have the crowd around him in yet. You say, ah, I'm not really sure if you can do it, but I'm definitely going to watch this. 
So he stands up on the tightrope and he walks all the way across and all the way back. He asks once again, who has faith that I can do that again? And by this point, we've seen him do it. So we say, absolutely, I have faith that you can do it again. He then grabs a unicycle because everybody who walks on a tightrope also knows how to unicycle. And he grabs a unicycle and he then hops on his unicycle and he goes all the way across and all the way back. And he says, who has faith that I can do that again? We all say, absolutely. He then has a large trunk with all kinds of random things and he grabs a wheelbarrow. And he places the wheelbarrow on the slack line, the tightrope, whatever you want to call it. And he says, who has faith that I can fill this full of stuff and walk all the way across and all the way back? And we say, absolutely. We've seen you do walking. We've seen you do a unicycle. A wheelbarrow full of sh stuff shouldn't be a problem. He then says, do you think I can do it if I take all this stuff out and I put a person in there? If I put a person in the wheelbarrow, do you think I can walk all the way across and all the way back? And by this point, we're all saying, absolutely. I don't know who you are or what you do for a living, but apparently walking across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope is like your bread and butter. So absolutely, feel free to throw anybody into this wheelbarrow and, and go from one side to the other. He then looks at you and says, get in. It's in this point where our faith has to become action. We've said we believe that he can do this. We said we have faith that he can absolutely throw anybody into that wheelbarrow and he can walk across and he can walk back. The problem, though, is what happens whenever he looks at us? What happens whenever he looks at us and asks our faith to become action? Do we truly believe that the man walking across the tightrope is able to do that? Do we truly believe by showing our obedience with our actions? This is the fear that I have for the modern-day church. I don't have the tra trajectory of, of Christianity on a positive trend, uh, specifically within the church of the West. What happens whenever it's no longer socially acceptable to be a Christian? What happens when it's no longer easy to get a copy of the Word of God? What happens in those moments whenever our faith is required to become action? How about a current example? Last November and last December, there was a lot of talk, uh, a whole lot of chatter, actually, um, regarding charitable giving on whether it was going to be advantageous from a tax perspective for individuals to give to charities, which includes churches. They're looking at the standard deduction and saying the standard deduction, by raising it, makes charitable giving not so advantageous anymore. In that season, does your giving change? Are we giving because of our faith? Are we giving because of tax advantages? Are we working within the church body and serving because of our faith or because we want to feel good? There are many issues which stretch and which test our faith. Most of the times, these are not easy things. Most times, these are really hard seasons and really hard moments that we walk through as believers. If you talk to some seasoned Christians, I would bet and imagine they've probably gone through moments like this within their own lives where their faith has been tested. Many times, these are moments we describe as times where we are grateful to have walked through them, but we hope we never have to walk through them again. I'm sure Abraham and his household would probably say the same thing about circumcision. They are grateful to have walked through this, but probably don't want to ever do that again. All right, so we just walked through the weirdest text to ever talk about on Mother's Day. Should beg the question, though, of so what? The big so what question. Why are we looking at a guy named Abraham who has promised a child and given a sign of the covenant? What does that have to do with you and with me? Circumcision is a hotly debated topic within the New Testament. If you look at Acts chapter 15, we have what's known as the Jerusalem Council, where we have individuals who are discussing, is it required for Gentiles to be circumcised? Turns out, circumcision is not required for salvation. We've discussed this already. It is not salvific. It is a sign of our obedience, of their obedience. Today, in the modern-day church, we have what are known as sacraments. Although we don't technically have what we call sacraments within the Old Testament, we do have things that were required of the people of God. These would include uh, observance, meals, as well as circumcision. Today, we as the modern-day church have two sacraments. We have baptism, we have communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, whichever one you choose to call it. It is through these acts that we proclaim both internally as well as externally the work of Christ. Internally, we are reminded of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross in our place. Externally, we proclaim to those around us our identity with the body of Christ and our example of faith and obedience. John Calvin says this about the sacraments. They, being sacraments, have the word of God annexed to them, by which he testifies that he is propitious, he is favorable to us, and calls us to the hope of salvation. Yea, a sacrament is nothing else than a visible image of that grace of God, 
which the word more fully illustrates. If then there is a mutual relationship between the word and faith, it follows that the proposed end and use of sacraments is to help promote and confirm faith. By following in these acts, we follow along with Abraham in displaying the sign of the new covenant through the blood of Christ. This is our way of evidencing our faith through obedience. I would encourage us all to seek out first God Almighty and then walk in that obedience. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Put action to your faith. Obedience is the evidence that our faith is genuine. This can come off very legalistic. I think the problem whenever it comes out as legalism, though, is we've missed the very first verse of chapter 17. I am God Almighty. We must first understand who God is. I implore you today, seek out God. There are no actions which you can do which can save yourself. Rest in God Almighty. Out of our understanding of what God has done for us, we are then called to obedience. What is God calling to you? Where is he testing your obedience to him? We all have the out-of-bounds things with God. It, it might be our location. It, it might be our jobs. It might be our families. You know, the things that we hold on to. The things that we sing, I can surrender all, except for all of these things over here, which are mine. Do not touch them. First, seek out God. Seek out God Almighty. Make sure he is your God and you are his people. Don't simply leave your faith there, though. Don't create a faith within, but create an outward faith. A faith that has the power to change lives and to change our world. Let your obedience to God this morning be the evidence that your faith is genuine. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your text this morning. Father, I thank you for the act of circumcision. Father, for the way that, that you have prepared your people in the Old Testament and prepared us today. Father, to see the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that we would be a circumcised people of the heart. Father, as your word says, Father, you have taken the heart of stone, and turn it into a heart of flesh. Father, that happens by your redeeming power. Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the ability to proclaim who he is, for the work that he has done on our behalf. Father, I pray that our, our faith does not end inwardly. Father, I pray that we would be a people of action. Father, that our faith is evidenced, Father, by our obedience. Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sin. I thank you for your grace and your mercy, Father. Lord, I pray that we as your people would abide in you. Father, it's in Christ's name that I pray this morning. Amen.